Hello, Paul. Hello. Come into the office. Take your seat there in the corner. You're looking well. You're looking well. How you been? Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. Oh, look. I've I've made an exciting discovery this week, Paul. Um, you you. I think you're going to like this. I've decided to take a leaf out of your book for a change, and uh, I went and I picked up some comic books to try and see what uh, you know it is that fascinates you about them. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Do you think it'll help with the therapy? Well, funny you should mention that, because I got some that I think are going to help me, A, understand your fascination, and B, give me uh, some sort of, like, professional insight uh, from within the world of the comics. So, the two books that I have picked up, uh, and I've read, and I'm very excited to share what I have learned from them with you. Uh, the first one is uh, one called Arkham Asylum. Uh, right. And, and the other one, very interesting in this one, uh, Heroes in Classes. <sighs> Walking through the heart of the fire, it's hard to keep moving forward. Living with my life on a wire again. world makes sense and few things left feel holy lying in the valleys with the dead everything's barely holding on no sanctuary there's no place to hide no sanctuary Twisting up my bones in the breakdown No sanctuary There's no place, no place Hello and welcome to DC OCD, the DC Events podcast where we're looking at every single DC event in order from 1985's Crisis on Infinite Earths all the way up to, well, we're getting very close to the end and uh, we are hitting one of the... um, one of the more controversial events, let's call it, uh, which is Heroes in Crisis this week. So um, I am joined by uh, two people who are, uh, let's say, them very, 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 very positive about this event um, in opposition to the rest of the universe. So <laughs> I have uh, Peter J. Rios uh, from the Daily Rios and uh, the Legion Project and podcasts like that, um, and he's also done a whole series on Heroes in Crisis issues. Uh, so welcome, Peter. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, happy to play in your sandbox once again. <laughs> Woohoo! Love it. Hmm. And I also have uh, Sean Ross from Secret Wars and Beyond, who um, who was pretty vocal on Twitter about um, some of the positive aspects of the event, and also got into uh, Peter's podcasting about it. So uh, yeah, Sean, hello. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, man. I'm super excited to be here, and uh, I do get accused of being a little bit of a, a podcast Pollyanna at times because I I just really enjoy things, and I'm I'm not going to shed that on this episode. I, in fact, if anything, I, I think I'm going to going to anger some people in that uh, I, I think they're wrong about their view on this book, but we'll get into that. 
I'm expecting people to get angry at me uh, for having you on. So, anyway, <laughs> what is Heroes in Crisis? Well, it's uh, a nine-issue mini that came out in uh, 2018. Um, it had a few very... I wouldn't call them essential tie-ins, but there was, like, one uh, issue of uh, Green Arrow, there was uh, two issues of Batman, and there were you know, probably three issues of The Flash that were relevant to it. But it was all written by um, Tom King, uh, with the time bits written by Joshua Williamson, um, art by Clay Mann, uh, Travis G. Moore, Lee Weeks, Mitch Gerards, Jorge Fornes, uh, lettered by Clayton Carls. Um, lettering is actually really good. Uh... Colours by Tamu Moray and Arif Prianto, and it was edited by Jamie S. Rich. So, um, yeah, so it tied into those things. So there's uh, an issue leading into it in The Flash where uh, Wally West is having some emotional problems, and then there's a few, let's call them coping with some dead uh, friends issues. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Peter, do you want to tell us what this one is all about? Sure, I wrote up a little thing after my... I don't even know how many rereads of this I've done because of podcasting about it. Um, So here we go. There's a mass killing at Sanctuary, a DC Universe safe haven located in Nebraska, where superheroes can go explore their trauma and deal with after effects of their violent lives. Out of this grisly scene, Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman pinpoint two suspects, Booster Gold and Harley Quinn, who are both now on the run. Booster eventually teams up with Blue Beetle. Harley eventually teams up with Batgirl, all while Lois Lane breaks the secret of Sanctuary to the larger citizen world of the DC Universe. Interspersed with recorded confessionals of various super beings during their stay at Sanctuary, as well as two conflicting accounts by Booster and Harley about what actually went down during the massacre, clues and paths lead to the revelation that Wally West is the true cause of all these deaths. Now it's a question of why, how, and even when. Whoa. Nicely done. <laughs> okay. no, that's very, very good, yeah. Okay, so, uh, yeah, that, that's the backdrop for this. So it's... um. Fairly grim, I think, to be honest. And this was really pitched as uh, Tom King, you know, pitched it that he was going to explore trauma, and uh, we all sort of sat up and paid attention because, um, you know, he's a he's an ex CIA person, and you know, he's he's been in uh, war zones and things like that. So we were, you know, expecting it to be okay. This will be very interesting, um, and well, it was a, a page turner. I remember being very excited whenever an issue came out. Um, and that soon turned to uh, horror and fascination, I guess, <laughs> with what are they doing to the DC Universe on my part. But, um, all right, Sean, do you want to talk about what most impressed you about uh, this? What, what were the biggest deals, the best moments, the, the things that you know really stood out to you? Yeah, I think for me, this is a book about it. That's, it's centered on a thesis, and I, I'm an English teacher. I love anything that's centered on a clear thesis. And this is a book about not only trauma, but what do we do when we return to our quote-unquote normal world after suffering a trauma? And I, I think King's personal history, you know, he was a CIA counterintelligence agent. He spent years in the Middle East, you know, during active war and, and conflict. And and I think a lot of his experiences inform this this comic. And I think it's that for me is the what's so powerful about it is that it's 
it takes, you know, character Wally and, and we'll, we'll talk about the, the controversy behind that, the choice of Wally. And I will say, I'm not going to bring this up a lot, but that was an editorial choice. King in interviews has said again and again, he just gave the plot outline to Dan DiDio and said, who can I use? And DiDio said, you need to use Wally West. So, but King still wrote it. So, but it's about trauma. It's about returning to the world after trauma. And I think about, you know, it, it must really, and I don't have this experience, but I think it must really echo what it would be like to be a soldier coming back from war. You know, you left as one person and then you became another person in that conflict. And then you came back as some sort of mix of the two and neither world feels right. And and I think that's really at heart what it's about. And, and you said kind of best moment that where that is captured for me the most in, in all places is the strangest is Narc, the caveman teen titan from the 60s who you know was brought to the present and then was at, at, in and out of continuity and then suddenly was in continuity again he's one of the people at sanctuary and he has these great little moments where he's thinking about life when he was in you know sort of prehistoric times and life now and he says in the old day death was always there so narc always worried about death in this new day life always there so now narc worry about life and i think that's the line of the book because I think it's it captures what it must be like for somebody who is coming back from some sort of combat or some sort of violent trauma. And then that applies to all of the heroes at Sanctuary and then Wally in particular, which, again, not a popular choice, but a choice that I can understand. So for me, it's it's that this entire event is built on this one really core idea of wanting to examine this in a superhero world. And it's something that hasn't really happened before. So I, for me, that's its strength. That's its greatest strength, actually. Mm. And Peter, what, what did you feel? Where did you uh, really latch onto it? Uh, I echo a lot of uh, what Sean talked about, and I'm, I'm uh, happy to hear, uh, you know, Sean, when you just said uh, trauma in a superhero universe, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the criticism right out of the gate on this book was well that's not how trauma is is handled and i think people forgot that this is superhero trauma mm-hmm. which we know nothing about right you know tom king is basically creating a a uh, a, a, a situation the sanctuary creating sanctuary and trying to develop it and say okay this is what a superhero community would need and this is how it would be within the DC universe. So, so no, it's not meant to be. I don't, I don't think anybody should pick this book up and say, I have trauma. This book is going to help me. No, that's not what this book is. <laughs> right. And, um, along with everything you're saying about the backstory, both of you about the backstory of Tom King, he also tells, uh, about how he lost his grandmother, the person that raised him and how traumatic of an event that was for him and what he learned about himself um this idea that most people with certain kinds of uh he goes to the ptsd um get this feeling that they are alone and that they're Mm -hmm. the only ones who are experiencing whatever it is that they're experiencing and you can even see it in the final two issues of this series you know it talks about no there are other people who will understand, you know, you just have to it, it, it. People have to reach a point where they're allowing themselves to talk. Right. And discover that they aren't alone. So that was something that Tom King found out about himself 
during the the time when he found out that his grandmother had passed away and he had uh, had this little panic attack and and it put him in the hospital and this is where he came up with his notion about the trauma that he was carrying so you put all that together into a book that um is branded with the crisis title mm-hmm. Right. Which is what the fifth one that you've now covered in this podcast, probably, if not more than that. (laughs) Um, And suddenly it also really became for me about what it's like for readers to have to go through event Mm -hmm. cycles and what happens when, you know, we put a lot of trust in creative teams and then and I think this is why we got the reaction we did about Wally West. And suddenly people are very upset about what happens and what happens to their journeys inside and outside of events. So it suddenly became like almost like in my head canon, like a commentary on not only what it's like for characters to have to go through events, but sometimes what readers have to go through. And and I think that's why there was a lot of strong backlash against Wally West um, being the center point to this. But. As Sean said, I'm, you know, when we di- if we dig into it a little more, there, I think there are actually smart reasons why he mm-hmm. was chosen. So, so yeah, I think that that's pretty much you know where I where I come from uh, when I read this series. <laughs> um, well, I'll I'll be playing the devil's advocate in here, but it, it's actually heartfelt. Uh, yeah, I I find so many of the choices in this comic just terrible, terrible choices. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I hear what you guys are saying, and you know, I, I think it's valid what you're saying, but it doesn't stop me um, just bristling at all the choices in this comic, and the you know the fact that you know we're going to do this very very you know gritty visceral examination of trauma, and we're going to use superheroes to do it, and you know there's obviously a very generous kill list that uh, editorial gave to Tom King to say you know <laughs> you can kill a whole bunch of characters, you know, and it it just seems so um i guess tone deaf i guess and and using wally in the, like we've had wally set up for uh in the rebirth era he came back like he was missing for new 52 um and then he came back and you know readers love wally they love his uh, run on the flash you know it's probably the best run of the flash in the last you know 40 years um so having him back was you know so yeah it was a positive thing for so many re- readers and then to have the character go, well, I can't handle this pressure, um, and you know, and it's a a pressure that, like for me, it's a pressure that editorial and writing didn't do anything with his return um, to make it continue that positiveness, and so it's almost like um, what Jeff Johns wrote in Rebirth uh, just got put aside and no one picked it up, and so because of that, someone said, oh, no one's picked this up with Wally, let's uh, you know, use that in a way that. Um, it felt like it was working against Rebirth suddenly, like the positive, um, hey, everything's coming back to the way you like it with the DC universe, uh, got um, suddenly detoured into, hey, everything we were heading towards, there's going to be worse now. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and there's a, I, I feel like there's a general embarrassment about Heroes in Crisis in DC editorial and writing going forward, whereas the only thing that they really wanted to pick up with was... Uh, what happens with Wally next and um, they had to do that because he's a beloved character and his story is so um, balked by this event um, that 
everyone was like, how do we fix Wally? So they have to deal with it, which is, you know, I, I, I get the feeling that DC didn't want to deal with it anymore, and particularly with uh, Dan DiDio uh, leaving. So, you know, mm-hmm. to my mind, this is a story I feel like when Tom King submitted it, DC said, oh, that's really nice, but this isn't the place for this. Um, have you thought about an Elseworlds or have you thought about going over to Marvel? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and for Dan DiDio to go, hey, let's use Wally West for this, it, it just feels... Um, so mean-spirited to the fans of the characters. And, you know, it works against the positive points of this story. Uh, that, you know, it's like, we're going to deal with this this horrible stuff. And we're going to use this beloved character. And we're going to really ruin this character. And, um, yeah. I mean, coming into this, I was already um, horrified at uh, Tom King's depiction of Booster Gold. In the There's a Batman arc called yeah. The Gift. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah. And he's got this version of Booster Gold who's just insane. Like, he really is insane. He's been travelling so much through time that he's lost all grip on reality and he decides to, you know, uh, give Batman a wedding gift by, um, you know, basically fixing his life but doing it to, you know, so his parents never died but to show him how stuffed the world would be if that happened. Um, <laughs> you know, which, okay, that you know, we've had stories like that where, you, you know, try and fix people try and fix things and it says oh it's worse you know it's the whole whole thing of what if and uh, elseworlds in many cases but yeah but it was such a, a departure on all the depictions of booster gold booster gold is a kind of he's a beloved fun character you, you know think of the Boahaha era um you know you want to root for him because the he's the underdog and then to see him sort of so unhinged and, you know, and this is where the first mention of um, Sanctuary comes in, is, you know, hey, hey you ought to go off to Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, another story that Tom King did about uh, Poison Ivy taking over the entire world, and then, mm-hmm. you know, she's, you know, lost the plot, so she needs to go to Sanctuary too. And the other mention I found of Sanctuary was when, you know, Wally is... He's so traumatised because he can't find Iris and the kids anymore. So he, they say, hey, you better go to Sanctuary. And he, you know, agrees to go. And there's a sort of a little bit of a positive um, spin on him, you know, seeking help at this point. Um, and so Sanctuary is this... Uh, it, it's a trauma centre set up by the superheroes where uh, what, they're robot versions of Ma and Pa Kent. And is it Lana Lang? Is that the other one? It looks like Lana, yeah. Yeah, who are there to, uh, you know, help people with their trauma. And you get to play in a holodeck with your trauma. So, you know, um, so you can reenact things or, you know, take yourself anywhere. And you know, it seems to be a, um, a place with very little guidance as far as you get to talk to a machine. Uh, the machine uh, records it, but then deletes it immediately. Um, yeah, and that's a key point of the plot. So yeah, I yeah I'm not as positive on this one. I mean, I, I it became a, a car wreck that um, you know every issue you were, you were waiting to read it to go oh what's going to happen next and you know um, yeah how bad will it be oh it's that bad that's amazing um, <laughs> yeah I, I think so I like to refer to the the machine that ran ran sanctuary as the tell me about your mother box um, but <laughs> it it was. It, it's well intentioned, but I, I do want to address the Wally of it all because it, it's it's the sticking point for me too. You know, Wally West is my Flash. He's the Flash I grew up with. I find him infinitely more interesting than Barry Allen, and, and I'm not disparaging Barry Allen, but Wally is is and he is what was missing from New Fifty Two. You know, along with 
you know, Tim Drake in a meaningful role. There's just all the things I loved in the DC universe, you know, the legacy of it all was all kind of stripped away by New 52. And Wally coming back in Rebirth was this major moment. And I, and like you, Paul, I was really, really troubled by the selection of Wally. And I found it to be tone deaf as well to the fans on an editorial side. But in, in reading this again and again, and, and to be honest with you, I was listening to Peter's coverage of it on the Daily Rios as each issue was coming out. And I would, I would kind of go for my run and I would listen and, and, and Peter, you don't know this, but I was having whole conversations with you. <laughs> and I was, you know, you're like, well, that's not true. Yeah, that's right. You know, as I was running, which people thought I was crazy, <laughs> but it, it, I, I really, for me, the, the difficulty of this was Wally, because I think it's, I, even as I was reading it in the moment, I thought it was the most a brilliantly crafted, unbelievably brilliantly drawn book, but, but choosing Wally stuck in my cry, I couldn't get over it. And then upon rereading it, again and again and then even honestly for today Wally makes so much sense in story because he is this this bright shining example even pre flashpoint he was the hero who got it right you know he was the hero who he you know had a public identity people loved him he was on the justice league he was one of the big guns but he had a wife and he had kids and he had stability and he had this whole legacy network of you know, Jay Garrick and Max Mercury and Bart Allen. And he had everything. Like if you, if you, you know, all of us as comic book fans have played that moment of like, who would I be if I could be any hero? If you really think about it, Wally West would have been the way to go pre flashpoint because he gets the hero and he gets the, the girl and the kids and the house. He gets all of it. He gets to have the whole full rich life, which no one, you know, most heroes don't get to have. So for him to come through that to, new 52 continuity and then be reduced in age and sort of pigeonholed back into this, you know, your Wally, your hope, your hope, your the, you know, the future. Again, it, the, the analogy for me is like a, a beloved family member or community member who goes off to war and then comes back and everybody expects that person to be who and what they were before they left. And everybody's looking to Wally, like, this is what we've been missing. You're our soul. And Wally's looking around going, but the thing that makes me me, my family, is is not only gone, but the woman who was my literal anchor to life, the woman who literally pulled me out of the speed force multiple times, doesn't remember me. She like, And, and that's, the, the I think, the hardest part. It would be easier if Linda were dead, because at least then he could grieve and move on. But to have lost her, have her still there and not remember him, and then not even be able to share the trauma of losing their children together – like I, I, in story, I think it makes so much sense. And and the way King writes it is Wally's break moment is, you know, he goes to sanctuary and he's super Wally about it. He's like week one down week two. I'm really making progress. And then he has this complete breakdown where he's like, oh, this is not real. I'm alone. This is all just I'm I'm the crazy one. This is just for me. Like this is just for me. And he goes and he, you know, goes through every file in sanctuary and he absorbs all of that. It once, which is what sort of puts him over the edge. And I, I, for me, again, the the sin of using Wally West is on Dan DiDio because he's the one who told Tom King. As a writer, Wally West is the best choice because as a fan, I understand PTSD and trauma better because somebody I love and loved fell prey to it and then had to recover and put the pieces back together. And I think it makes it more relatable it makes it if it had been 
and this would have been the easier choice, right? If it had been a, a, a Lagoon Boy who had done it, right? If it had been some C-lister or D-lister, it'd still be a great story, and we wouldn't have the hang-up of, oh, it wrecked this beloved character. But I also don't think it would hit as hard because we'd be like, well, yeah, that was Lagoon Boy, but you know, surely Wally West would never fall prey to this or, or Superman. And I think what King is saying is stop judging people based on that. The best of us break. And the best of us need help and healing. And I'm going to show you that through this beloved character who suffered way more than any of you have acknowledged, but he needs to acknowledge. So it's weird. I, I'm, I'm in a similar place to you, Paul, where I love the use of Wally because in story, I think it's brilliant and it drives the thesis of the book home. But as a Wally fan, I really struggled with this book. And only now that they're sort of redeeming Wally and that's the whole next arc of the new Flash book or Flash creative team, am I starting to get more comfort with it? I, Peter, I know you had said something about Wally. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would, I would uh, argue uh, that, you know, um, so Paul, you brought up Booster Gold during the Bwahaha era and, and Flash's Wally's sort of um, place within fandom. Um, you know, we've talked about that, but we have to kind of look at it and go, when did Wally West as Flash really sell the Flash title? It had it's been about an you know prob I'd argue ten fifteen maybe more years prior to this book coming out right when Mark Wade returned to the book when we got the kids when we got you know Lynn, the family it was not selling the way mm-hmm. uh, it used to sell or or it didn't have the impact the way like the old original Mike Barron run or the William Messner Loeb's or Mark Wade's first run. Right. And Booster Gold had that really great series that spun out of 52. Um, but even that was how, what, 10 years maybe before this hit. I think, I think w- fandom is also to blame <laughs> for why Wally West w- went in the direction that he went in this story, because you know, what's the joke we always say? People say you can't have a crisis without a flash dying. <laughs> oh. Right. Isn't that always the thing? Like you got to have a flash uh-huh. die during a crisis. OK, can that's a hell of a thing to put on a character. Right. And <laughs> and by saying that Wally was brought back in DC Rebirth and he was all positive, et cetera, et cetera. You're right. Nobody did anything with him for two years. We took it for granted that Wally was back. And then Tom King, once he was given that notion, decided to say, oh, you know what? That's kind of it's kind of sad that as readers we're like, yeah, he was gone. Now he's back. OK, great. Let's read other things. You know, mm-hmm. oh, but he's in Titans and it's not that great of a book. Oh, who cares? At least he's back. Well, what does that mean? At least he's back. So I think that's why, you know, I sort of get a little too meta, meta with this. And I understand that that's not everybody's favorite way to talk about comics. Um, but there's there's I, I think Tom is right. Like, I, I like that he's ruffling feathers by saying, I don't want to be hope. I don't. It what well, Yeah, mm-hmm. that DC Rebirth special was great. It was so good. Nothing happened after that. And you can't just dangle the story because Jeff Johns is out in the TV world or the movie world or whatever and can't get back to it. You know, somebody has to pick up the ball and run with it. And they decided to do it this way. Made a lot of people angry. But you know what? Those same people, had they supported Wally, really supported. If he really had the fandom that he had, 
his book would still be around during the new 52 or he would have been around during the new 52. And he wasn't. He just wasn't. So I think story wise, I think that's why I like it, because uh, trust me, I, I read it and I go, you know, again, this is a podcast about events. If you're just going in cold and you don't read any promotional or any uh, any interviews, you know, you're seeing heroes in crisis. Maybe you know what the word crisis means in D.C. You might you might have expectations. And it's a story that the plot is pretty slow. Mm -hmm. You know, he's taking a lot of time with these confessionals. He's taking two issues where it's completely out of sort of the main narrative of the book. And it's going a little real deep with this introspective uh, thing with Wally and Narc, like you said, and Lagoon Boy, etc. Um, it's a slow story. The plot is is slow. I get it. I, it's it's not everybody's. It's not what they want out of the Super Bowl um, when they get to the Super Bowl, you know. Um, but I do also believe that Tom King has a voice as an author, whether you like it or not, and. I, I kind of like that I can give my I gave myself over to the voice, even mm -hmm. when there were parts that were kind of frustrating or, you know, I still don't really know why when he had the accident. Why didn't he just go to Superman, Batman and yeah. Wonder Woman and just say I had an accident, you know, like that? OK, you can you can kind of you can pick it apart in that regard. Um, but when an author has a voice like Morrison during Final Crisis or um uh, you know, Bendis has a certain voice. Uh, Alan Moore has a has a voice that changes a lot depending on the characters that he's writing. And maybe it's because this voice wasn't as accessible as some of the other ones. But I kind of like giving myself over to the world of whatever the author is trying to create and see what they're trying to do, because it's messy. I don't disagree. This is a, it's messy. It's risky. It's uh, it, it is controversial, but I kind of love that because I tend to mine more out of those stories. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not sitting here talking about Day of Judgment again. Right. Or, or <laughs> you know, Genesis, whatever yeah. else. Genesis. Right. Whatever else is at the lower end of your ladder. Right. Like, I, I feel like even if this does wind up in the lower end, I, there's just so much meat to it. So sorry, I, talk, I talked a lot there. How dare you talk on my, my podcast about this stuff when I've been writing? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah, okay. Um, counterpoint. Uh, I, <laughs> I guess this brings up what the sins of DC editorial in that I very clearly think that um, Barry shouldn't have come back ever because mm -hmm. once you put Barry back on the table, uh, Wally doesn't have a place unless it's mm -hmm. in a subordinate role or back with the Titans, for goodness sake. And, you know, I think the DC Universe is configured to only have enough uh, vacancies for certain things at certain times. Like, for, I don't <laughs> think you can have Young Justice and a version of the Teen Titans in the DC Universe at the same time because there isn't room for both of them. Uh, you can't have Wally and uh, Barry, you know, particularly because I thought, you know, when Barry returned, he got his own title in the New 52, they wrote him like Wally, you know, he was yes. you know, mm -hmm. more young and exuberant, and, you know, that was clearly, it could have easily been Wally, but they were trying to have a fresh start, and, you know, the, this idea of, you know, you want to go back to the most iconic versions of a character, you know, the most, you know, basic version, the, the one that people from, um, let's face it, people who are pitching media can get easily. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas, you know, I don't think... 
I mean, that did a real disservice to the DC universe because, uh, you know, if Barry hadn't come back, you would have had very good Flash runs, I reckon, um, and they would have been better than the uh, the Barry run, even because people wouldn't ever hang up of, you know, where's Wally gone? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I feel, yeah, I've, I feel like this is a compounding of the sins of editorial over and over again. This series, and we we get to this point, and it's like, yeah, okay, we're they're playing with the cards that have been dealt to them, but these cards should never have been dealt. You know, we shouldn't have had this situation where Wally is basically redundant. I mean, you get the same thing with Green Lanterns. There are so many Earthbound Green Lanterns that you can't tell a story about one of them without coming up with, well, what's the deal with the others? And they tend to just ignore where the others are, put them off in space and things like that. And it's, you know, (laughs) there's... Yeah, there's too many uh, um, pegs and not enough holes to plug them into (laughs) sometimes Mm -hmm. with the DC Mm -hmm. Universe. And, yeah, it's a balancing act. And, you know... they struggle with it today, like how do we move the universe forward and bring in new things and more diversity and, you know, more stuff that's reflective of the world around us. But, you know, we also want to have our cake and eat it too and leave these other things on the table. Whereas, you know, Barry's return would have, I don't know, have so much more impact if Wally had actually died um, at mm-hmm. some point, you know, and then you have a reason for, you know, Barry to carry on. And you can, you know, keep all the beloved adventures of Wally, um, etc. And just... Yeah, but, yeah, I mean, so, to me, this is, um, it's a flag that's planted in a pile of um, mistakes uh, for the DC Universe. Um, hey, Paul, and- I, Paul, I think you, I think you actually, you're, you, you wrote a better ending. Wally should have killed Barry at the end of this. Is that really what people <laughs> mad? <laughs> oh, dear. I do have a question, Paul. Did, did rereading it? during the pandemic change it for you at all? Because I know, again, I read this a ton when it came out. I, I read it along with Peter's coverage and then rereading it now. And that the moments where Wally at the end of it says, I was convinced I was alone. I was convinced I was alone. I had to check. I, I thought it was just me. I thought it was just me. It rang differently. And, and the fact that the, the answer at the end of this book, which I love is that, Real healing ha- happens when you reach out for help. Real healing happens when you have other supports. Like, like Booster, like you said, is depicted as crazy in that Batman arc. And then the minute Ted comes in and rescues him, Booster resets in his back. Harley is crazy in the beginning of this. Barbara Gordon reaches out to her, then Poison Ivy, and then she kind of resets in his back. And it's this reminder that, you know, we need people. And I have to tell you, after this year, uh, and plus, of, you know, isolation and limited social contact and, you know, a, a change in the way in which we interact with people, you know, I have, have recognized more than ever, you know, shame on me for not seeing it more before that, but that, you know, like what has kept me sane during this is my wife and my kid and, you know, seeing my friends in some version and, and you know, podcasting and comics and the, all the different ways I was reaching out for human contact is what helps sustain me. And I think about that a lot as I'm reading this, because I think about Wally in isolation, believing he's alone. And it just it rang differently for me sort of after COVID. And I don't know if that did it. Did that have any impact on your reading at all? Or, or you know, is it still still kind of the same issues with it? Well, I guess uh, the Australian experience of COVID is much more, um, you know, we've basically beaten it. So, you know, we're we're almost back to complete normal. I mean, people are still, uh, you know, social distancing is still much more of a thing, but, you know, we're going back to the cinemas, you know, we're in restaurants, we're, you know, we're out and about, you know, people, I've noticed people are shaking hands again and, you know, 
much as I don't want to do that, that's happening. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't really have a COVID um, lens to view this through, but, I, I, you know, that's an interesting point. I could see that's very uh, valid. I guess on my reread, um, like the first time I read it, you're trying to go, what's going to happen? Where's this going? Yeah. And that is incredibly distracting the story. So the second time I read it, which was, you know, in the last week, it was like, I know where this is going. And you could see, okay, Wally is suspiciously um, prominent in all the um, sanctuary, you know, uh, tapes, as it were, because you're seeing a lot of what he's saying. Um, and it makes a lot more sense now. You go, oh, okay, okay, yeah, Wally is front and centre in, in the midst of all this. And whereas you don't really, I think it's what, issue eight, you get the revelation that he's the one. I mean, although, uh, you know, Peter, I think, was on on the money as far as picking where who was doing mm-hmm. things that, uh, earlier, which was one of the impressive things about your podcast, Peter, because you were doing the episodes as the issues came out and you were, you know, picking up things. So, yeah, I, I can see, you know, a lot more of, okay, this is where the story's going. I think the other thing is, though, you know, to me, and if this is insensitive, to me it's obvious that, you know, when you deal with people trauma, you put them together and get them to talk to each other, and you, you need to yeah. talk it through. You need human interaction. Um, and to set up sanctuary, it's a pretty tone-deaf environment to deal with things, where people are talking to a computer and basically holodecking themselves through their problems, which is... Hey, doggy! Uh, <laughs> which is not... Um, you know, no one in the real world thinks that's a good way to deal with trauma. You know, like put it, isolating people and making them work through it themselves. You know, it's... Yeah, so it's obvious to me that you, people need to talk through their traumas. And Sanctuary isn't set up that way. I mean, Sanctuary is a, a legal case waiting to happen. It's, you know... Yeah. this. It's so uh, tone deaf as far as this is how you deal with trauma. And, you know, to have Batman and Superman and all the heroes, you know, not only, you know, condone it, but partake of it is, it's crazy. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I I mean, that's the thing. This is a series that says, let's look at the real issues with this. But it's not in the real world. It's not in a real way. And, you know, in a real, in the real world, Sanctuary would never fly. And, you know, the revelations that Lois is, you know, publishing this place exists and everyone's going, oh, okay, oh, that's scary that superheroes, you know, have these problems and they have to deal with them. And no one's going, why are you dealing with it in this way? This is the stupidest way in the world to deal with these problems, <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, there's a sort of, um, hey, let's, Let's in, uh, you know, let's invite the superhero universe into this pool of reality, and you know, and then, at the same time, there's this like, well, this is an incredibly unrealistic way to deal with it. Um, so, yeah, I'm torn. I'm torn all over it. Um, now, there's one thing I wanted to mention. Was the story actually going somewhere else at some point? Um, because when you look at how the heroes die, you know, uh, all the heroes in Sanctuary, it looks like um, Lagoon Boy is taken mm-hmm. out separately after everyone else. Um, and he gets, a, you know, a javelin or something through him. It's hard to tell. Um, it, is there any hints that the story got modified as they went? The only thing I could maybe say in regards to those issues, because that's issue three, I think, and then the yeah. other issue is issue six. Those are the... Um, they were supposed to do uh, two, I don't know if you want to call them specials or whatever, but they weren't going to be part of the numbering. So then at one point, I guess Tom King decided and just said, no, 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 let's just throw them in 
into the numbering. It doesn't make sense to make readers buy, you know, uh, uh, an Infinite Crisis special, you know, like an outside of the main title. So because they were originally planned as kind of these these secondary issues or tie-in issues with different artists and also because they focus on um harley quinn and booster gold's uh point of view a little bit uh especially near the end of each of those issues about um they focus on um what wally puts them through in the chamber when he puts them back into a chamber and so they don't really see what the massacre is part of me feels like okay are are we seeing their perspective of what happens because Wally and Roy, their bodies wind up in different parts of the sanctuary in each of those issues. Uh, the Lagoon Boy seems like an afterthought to the massacre. So I don't, I don't know. This isn't an answer to your question, <laughs> but I, I feel like those issues almost are from a different perspective, not the main perspective of what actually happened. Um, but I, I, that's just supposition. Okay, well, yeah, I'll I'll allow that no prize. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so now, is there anything else we want to add about the spin-offs from this? I mean, um, Sean, you mentioned it. There's a new Flash title coming out next week, or just a new creative team on the Flash, um, and they're, you know, confronting Wally's problems head-on after, um, you know, I think the DC Universe has been trying to do things with Wally for a while now. Um, I think there was even a plot where... Um, the evil whispering of the reverse flash yeah. was one of the factors in uh, Wally's uh, bizarre choices at the end of this mini. Um, yeah, is there anything else we can say about that? I don't. I don't think the tie-ins from this are necessary on any level, particularly the much-hyped Flash Batman, the price kind of crossover. Um, I don't think they're necessary. I do. I am excited to see what comes next with Wally. I liked that Williamson added that little bit of like. Everything bad that's happened has been the reverse flash whispering in in the flash's ears. I mean, it's a total cheat, but I'm okay with it because, you know, like like you and like many people, I, I want while well, he's one of my favorite characters and I want him back on the road to, you know, who I think he is. Um, but you know, there's a way to do that that works, and I'm I'm hopeful that this new Flash creative team really puts the work in to to make Heroes in Crisis instead of something we forget or just, you know, write overwrite something that's like ingrained into his story and, and becomes a, you know, much more interesting part of it moving forward. So, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't know, you know, how Peter feels. I don't think that the, the crossovers are required at all. Yeah. And we just had the infinite frontier special that confirmed that, uh, um, uh, Roy is back from the dead Arsenal law. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. th- that's been directly undone due to, um, time shenanigans at the end of death metal. So, well, and, yeah. I'm hopeful that they do what they they just pull an Emerald Twilight here and it's like, hey, all those Green Lanterns Hal killed on the way to Oa, they actually were kidnapped by Cyborg Superman and they're all back and they all forgive him. Like I kind of hope we get that. Like I hope, you know, with the the hand wavy shenanigans of, of death metal means that we get a Lagoon Boy special or, you know, a um, you know, Narc and Lacey or something, you know, some sort of cop show, you know, with Narc. I don't know. But I just hope we get I hope we get those characters back and that it, the, the slate is quite sort of wiped clean from Wally because I, I don't like those deaths, you know, even though it was accidental and even though it was a response to trauma and you can't really hold him responsible for that, though what he does after you can. 
I, you know, I do hope those get waved away. Yeah, I, I think I was really hoping that would happen in story, and the ninth issue would be, hey, everything we've been watching is actually still a simulation that, um, yeah. you know, Wally's going through. Or, you know, everyone who died, you know, we basically went to the future and got um, the fake body that we got for Wally. We got one of them for everybody, and now they're <laughs> off in somewhere else, which is a real sanctuary from all this, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, so they've all been rescued or something. Because, I mean... Yeah, it happens every time they do this when it, someone in a story says, hey, can I kill off a few characters? And, you know, editorial go, hey, yeah, okay, you can have these ones. And, you know, it feels like Tom King asked and they just said, oh, you can have the, oh, we got some more. Here's some more. Here's, oh, we found some more. You know, and basically just kept shoveling characters at him to say, you know, have these in your pile of death. Um, so, yeah. Mm. All right, we might take a break and then we'll come back and do some scoring. The world's strongest hero. The warrior from a hidden island. The master of super speed. The wielder of the weapon from beyond the stars. The champion of the seven seas. They are the only ones standing before a world beyond the brink of collapse. Their mission, abolish war and crime, eliminate poverty and hunger, clean the environment, cure disease, even stop death itself. They promise within a year to make the world a utopia no matter how many lines they might need to cross. Coming soon to the Pulp to Pixel Network, the Squadron Supreme Cast, an exploration of Mark Gruenwald's epic 1985 Squadron Supreme miniseries, a look at the heroes, the villains, the fine lines separating them, and how this miniseries continues to play an influence in mainstream superhero comics. Now it's the part of the show where we score this event, and the way we do that is there's four categories. The categories are eventiness, uh, the writing, the art and the covers, and the impact and legacy. And we score these out of a scale of 10, uh, and that gives us a score, well, there's three of us, so four times 10 is 120. Look at my maths. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah, one of us has to be the semi-OCD, so not the fully put participatory one in this so I'm going to take that role so my score will be halved and that will give us a score out of 100 which will fit nicely with the ladder where we've scored every single other event that we've come to so far so okay uh, gentlemen Peter do you want to start talking about the eventiness of this one yes okay so now here's where in all of these numbers and all these numberings this is where even though you know Sean and I are talking up the the book. This is where some of this is going to fall away. Um, So like Identity Crisis, I feel like this book, DC wanted wanted it to be big, and it probably would have been better had it been small. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, the branding of this makes it an event. Heroes in Crisis, you know. but should it have just been called Sanctuary? I don't know. Should it have just been called something else? I don't know. So there is an event nature to it. And as I started reading it, you know, originally I was like, wow, this should have not. This, I don't think they should have branded it like that. Um, it, it had a blockbuster feel because uh, the promotion was behind it. The DC promotional machine was behind it, not only in terms of ads, but uh, at San Diego Comic-Con that year, they were giving away masks, and Tom King held an informal panel with robes and masks and, you know, to talk up the book. 
So there was a lot of hype behind it. Um, in terms of the story, while there are certain event qualities, I mean, it uses a lot of characters throughout the DC universe. It has uh, kind of uh, an event ending, sort of, but not really. So it's hard. It's a hard thing to to, to kind of talk about. Oh, one other aspect that I that I think adds to the eventiness is putting your it boy writer, putting your sort of star writer on an event almost immediately, right? Like, not to bring it up again, but when Jeff Johns wrote Day of Judgment, who was Jeff Johns that he was able to get an event back then, right? Like that, he wasn't mm-hmm. Jeff Johns, like the, he wasn't Infinite Crisis Jeff Johns. He was Stargirl Jeff Johns probably at that point, if that, uh, you know, b- bringing Brad Meltzer in to do Identity Crisis. Obviously, he's he's got a name, but it should have been a smaller story. So, you know, you put Tom King on this book. He he had just wrapped up Mr. Miracle or was sort of wrapping it up by that point, I think. So it has the ingredients for an event, but I feel like it probably shouldn't have been an event. And since you can't do a point five, I gave it I rounded up to a six for eventiness. Otherwise, I would have given it a 5.5, but a 6. <laughs> oh, okay, Sean, what do you think? Yeah, I 100% agree with Peter. You know, one of my my big arguments about this book is that it should not have been an event. If it had just been a small Tom King self-contained story that he, you know, those, those that he, he does those so well, then this would be much more fondly remembered. But, you know, because it was sort of tagged with an event, it reminds me of what they did with Countdown to Infinite or to Final Crisis to Grant Morrison when they did that whole weekly series that I don't think you even read, Paul, when you, you covered it. with You made poor Tim Price read it. Um, I did read so, it. Yeah. I did. I did. But I oh, didn't, you did. re- okay. I didn't okay. reread it for the show. <laughs> oh, there you go. So I agree with Peter. I think that, you know, where I have a lot of positive things to say. I think it, actually the the eventness of this is actually part of its downfall. It's part of what what chips away at it. So I went with a five for eventiness. Yeah, I went with a four just because I I, I feel like um, a lot of events they pull everything from the DC universe together in a way, and it, this felt like it was pulling things uh, that I mean, Sanctuary wasn't really earned. I mean, they're trying to treat it like it exists, like Arkham Asylum, and it's literally had three mentions in comics by two different writers and that's it um so it just didn't feel like it it organically came from the universe or used the universe in a way and i feel yeah like uh, there's some bizarre stuff in this um you know just yeah it doesn't feel like it's part of the dc universe particularly um you know they live with the legacy of it but mm. Yeah, so uh, I'm giving a four, because, uh, yeah, that's the guy I am on this podcast this week, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now we get to the writing. So, Sean, where do you think the writing is? So this is probably going to be controversial. Uh, I'm giving it a nine. I think that, you know, Peter captured that idea of King have a ver- having a very distinct voice, and it's a voice I love. And I, and I get if some people don't, you know, obviously there's no arguing taste, but I am a huge fan of Tom King, and... You know, I think he, his voice really comes through. I think he works brilliantly with Clay Mann and with Mitch Gerads and, and the other artists on this book. And so I think the the pacing of it is really lovely. I love the the cutaway scenes to the characters discussing their issues. I, I could have had a whole series of that, to be honest with you. That would have been, I think, even more satisfying. 
just to get to see these behind the scenes and these emotions that they're tapping into. So I think the writing is really good. I, I'm not going to go to 10 because there are just a couple plot elements, you know, and, and Peter brought one up earlier that, you know, the whole booster gold Harley Quinn thing probably didn't have to happen at all. Like, well, you know, I, mean, I get, I guess I get that Wally was sort of panicking and was in still in the, the crisis moment where he broke down when he made some rash decisions, but you know, there, there are some pieces here that are very arguable and, and I don't blame people for not enjoying some of them, but for me, it's, it's still, I read it again for this show and it hit me just as hard. So I went with a nine. I might make you the semi the way you're going. Actually, <laughs> That's uh, fair. Peter, <laughs> Peter, what's your score? <laughs> All right. Um, so again, um, let me, let me talk before I give my number because I'm not sure quite yet what my number is. So, this was probably the first Tom King work that I read as it was coming out. So I, I was definitely collecting Mr. Miracle Vision. Was he on? I think he was on Batman by this point, you know, but I wasn't reading it. Like I would read some issues. Yeah, of course he was on Batman by this point. Um, but I wasn't, I, I, you know, I was in a moment, I was in a time period because this came out, what, 2018, I think, where there were a lot of changes going on. And Tom King even talks about um, this. This A lot of this story was in reaction to the anxiety that he felt people were having throughout society, culturally, politically, blah, 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 blah. So there was a point there where I was collecting a lot of comics. I just really wasn't reading. I wasn't really podcasting that much. So long story short, this was the first thing I was reading. As soon as as soon as it came out, I was reading it all the way through to the end. So I enjoyed it because of that. Just like Sean, those confessionals. I mean, that the Donna Troy confessional alone yeah. makes the whole series for me. I love that confessional about her origin. Um, I love the notion that Tom King loves to take characters. He messes them up. And hopefully by the end, um, uh, they become something more. Uh, I kind of, I, you know, I really dig that. Um, yes, there are, there is a flow to this that you, there's a rhythm that is not linear, that, is, uh, you know, is not everybody's favorite way to read comics. I totally understand that. So, uh, and, and I, and I also have to kind of give a little strike against the ending because even though we get the revelation in, I think it, it starts to build in seven. It, it, it lays it all out in eight. And by nine, we have to, we have to really sort of resolve everything and, and give a couple pages to whatever happens after. And I feel like events in general suffer on the downward slope of what, of when we, when we pass the main climax, you know? Um, and I felt this book wrapped up, too quickly, uh, which probably people out there are going, what, you want another issue? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, writing wise, I'm going to give it a seven um, purely on the writing aspect. If, if I start talking writing and pictures, that's a different story. But and we'll get to that in the next thing. So that's a low score for me. I feel bad, but I'm going to go with a seven. I'll show you a low score. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, okay, my I'll talk about it. My feeling is um, this story. It's um, yeah, it's interesting. Okay, we, we want to examine trauma, and so uh, that is a. I think it's a noble cause. Um, I think there's one thing that works against that intent, and that's to make it a murder mystery at the same time. 
um, because to do that you have to do some incredibly bizarre things to Wally's actions so basically okay he runs through uh, the computer system and pieces together all the bits of uh, disassembled data uh, to get everyone's recordings and watches them all and then releases them all and then he um, basically accidentally kills everyone because he's freaking out and then he jumps ahead in time takes himself back in time kills himself you know it's just yeah, there's some craziness at the end that is basically, you know, if it wasn't a murder mystery and this was truly an examination of trauma, you wouldn't have to do any of those things. Like, Wally could have done all this and everyone could have shown up and then you could basically sort of have, um, basically do these, you know, post-trauma sessions. Um, mm. So that could have been what happened. But the fact that they made it a murder mystery and to do that, there's so many bizarre hoops that you have to do to make it a mystery and that, you know, Booster Gold thinks Harley did it, Harley thinks Booster Gold did it, and Wally basically set up false uh, holodeck narratives for them to uh, go on the wrong uh, trail. Uh, yeah, that that is a lot of heavy lifting for someone who's, you know, just freaked out and killed lots of people by accident, whereas, you know, if w Wally had just stayed there sobbing, you know, that would have seemed more real to me. Um, as far as you know what he's done and the responses to it so yeah uh, so yeah to my mind this is a story that uh, if Tom King pitched it DC's should have gone uh, yeah, um, yeah maybe keep that in your back pocket you know I don't think they should have <laughs> greenlit it I don't think it should have been an event I don't think it should have been a big story uh, you know like, like to me I just don't think anyone thought through the ramifications of this story and thought okay do we want to chuck this grenade into our continuity and, you know, have to have a horribly damaged Wally come out of it? You know, we, we talk about, you know, mistakes that DC does. Like, you look at what happened with um, Captain Adam at the end of uh, Armageddon 2000 and Hawk and Dove and things like that. You know, that is a legacy of a series that the DC universe has really struggled with to try and do something, you know, worthwhile with because the, the story got changed. And this is another one. It's just a nasty bit of business to keep dealing with so from that point of view i mean i i this is well written uh, the characterization is is good in many cases sometimes i think it's a bit too um clever like i think there's some stuff in the the narratives where it's going hey you know let's have a bit of fun with this and you know all the ex robins are insecure except for damien and <laughs> you know and to me that seems trite and you know the bit about donna troy i mean that's very clever in the way they you know talk about you know, it obliquely talks about the dualities in her origin and how she came to be and, you know, was it just a editorial mix-up that made her exist and things like that. And, you know, there, that's a mix of triteness with all this heavy stuff and I don't know if it uh, really works that well for me. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm going to give it a two as a story that, yeah, well told but shouldn't have been told in the DC universe. So, mm. Wow! Wow! <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to go low. I didn't know you were going to go that low. Wow! Mm. All right. So, but this brings me to the art and covers because I can say positive things about the art and covers. The art is really fantastic. Uh, Clay Man stuff is beautiful, um, and you know, there's a lot of intricate work and clever stuff. And the way the the heroes in crisis. Um, you know, titles get integrated into the art. Uh, the, the picture of uh, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle sitting around is, um, you know, and Heroes in Crisis is sort of etched out in the room in the, the windows mm -hmm. and the clock and the bottles on the table and their, the positioning of their legs. It's it's really, really clever. Um, I will, like, okay, so this art is, you know, really 
top tier, but I want to give it a markdown because there's some some sexy Lois that is just perplexing. Um, you know, and there's a few other times where it's like, why are you making that choice? Does that choice really fit this story? You know, it seems um, to do a disservice. I mean, uh, the shot of Lois, she's just wearing a t-shirt and underpants, and, you know, she's hanging in the door like she's inviting someone back for uh, a cuddle. Uh, it's very weird. Um, yeah, and it detracts from the story at that point. So I'm going to give it a nine, but I think... Does that make up for my two for writing? <laughs> anyway, Sean, what do you think? <laughs> So, yeah, I think the, the my my lament on this podcast is that we I focused so much on the writing. I didn't talk about the art enough and the art. I, I think the art is transcendently beautiful. This has the best opening splash, splash pages of any comic book I've ever read between the, the booster and beetle scene that you talked about. The floral image of Wally in the field planting the flower that regrows poison ivy. The Teen Titans one where Donna's carrying Garth on her shoulder because he drank too much and they're walking by this mural. I mean, it's just gorgeous, and Clayman is is a an unbelievably talented artist, and and uh, Tamu Moray, the colors in this book are just. I mean, I hope um, that you know Moray won an Eisner for this because the coloring in this book is is beautiful beyond measure. So I love the art, and then I love the fact that there are moments where man, you know, has fill-ins, right? Like there there are people who step in for certain scenes. But it's, I mean, Lee Weeks, who's an all-time great artist, and Mitch Gerads and Jorge Fornes, and and it's so it's it's amazing because not only is all of the art transcendently good in this, but it's it also sets up Tom King's future collaborators in in the kind of books that he does now. These these twelve issue stories, self-contained stories he does now. These are all the people he'll work with moving forward. So I really love it. I, I gave it a ten. I just think it's I think if for all the faults you can find in the story, and I totally understand why we're at such different poles in the story, I think I think the art is inarguable. I think it's just it's beautiful. All right. And Peter, what did you think? Agreed. I'm gonna give it a ten as well. Uh, I echo everything everybody says about the art uh, uh, in terms of just the, how innovative it really was for this kind of story. Um, I also want to talk about the covers, too. The covers, I think, are um, they're pretty good for the most part. I think issues eight, uh, issue eight's cover by Mitch Garrods, which is Wally and Linda and their kids looking over um, – uh, you know, a, a very quiet Nebraska skyline with the bodies behind them. I am not a fan of Wally when he had the fam- when he had the family. I actually did not care for that time in his life. Um, but I love that image. That is a fantastic image. But really, for me, the covers that also sold it were the variants by Ryan Sook, or I should mm-hmm. say, the alternate covers by Ryan Sook, which were little Polaroids throughout um, that the that depict various tragic moments in most of our characters uh, lives. Superman, when he dies, Batman, when his back is broken, uh, Aquaman, when he loses his hand, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I collected both the regular uh, issues and those alternate Sook covers. I wound up selling the regular run and kept the Sook variant run for myself. So um, that goes to show how much I really love those those covers so yeah all around just so beautiful to look at so it's a 10 wow okay all right peter do you want to take us home on the impact of the legacy as well okay yeah and we we you you talked a little bit about it um i think we all did at one point or another the the impact the legacy 
Um, <laughs> no pun intended, but it definitely petered out um, <laughs> once it was <laughs> once it was over. Um, I actually didn't mind that the sanctuary, the little seeds about sanctuary prior to this would eventually just then lead into it. Um, it may have felt a little abrupt, but I didn't mind that. What I, what you could quickly see was that nobody was going to carry that seed once it was done. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's definitely the mark of Cain on this book, uh, the mark <laughs> of King. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Which is unfortunate. Um, and even what they did with Wally West, right? We got a couple miniseries out of this flash forward, a Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy miniseries that spun out of this. But all of a sudden, it seemed like every Wally appearance after this, suddenly now everybody wants to do something with Wally. Um, and that became, I think, a little bit of a crutch for the character. No, you know, he's ignored for two years when he comes back and now suddenly everybody wants to mess him up so now it's to the point where i see on twitter every now and then people are like whoa can you can you slow down and stop stop beating wally so much um and the other so that's like legacy the impact um it, it was a messy time for dc you know the, the dc rebirth really hit really well in 2016 mm-hmm. but they didn't really deal with the ramifications and like, like i said earlier john was wasn't around to do what he wanted to do so everything just kind of got messy um because of it and i also think uh talking about events i think social media really kind of wrecked this story as well because once the the wally west threads were starting to come out um, I think, you know, of course, uh, Bleeding Cool, which is a site that I just despise, they they were beating that Wally West drum over and over. Mm-hmm. And people who weren't reading the story were were already hating it because how dare they do something to Wally, right? Like, so I feel like the social media backlash, the impact of the story in its immediacy was skewed because there are a lot of people who were talking about the book without having read it. So put all those things together, impact legacy. I gave it a five because it's, it, it didn't do anywhere near what it wanted to do probably. Um, but there still are some tiny threads and we get, as Sean mentioned, some really great artists and collaborations out of this. So a five. Wow. Okay. And Sean, what do you think about the impact and legacy of it? So I, I agree with Peter. I, I'm actually going to give it a little bit of, and this is this is going to make some people really angry. I'm going to give it some points in impact and legacy because of what it did to and for Wally. And, and I think Peter really captured it. You know, he has this great comeback in Rebirth One, and then poof, not just nothing much, right? Just kind of there in that Titans book, and then this happens, and then now the entire opening arc of this new creative team on flash infinite frontier is the redemption literally it's called the redemption of wally west like so i you know i love that character enough that i don't want him to languish and so if if this event triggers more you know years and years of great wally stories then i'm i'm happy with it and i can't say that it has because that book hasn't come out yet but i'm excited for the potential of it you know and i and i think peter's comment about fandom is interesting you know, fandom has always been this, but it's more evident now with social media. There is this interesting section of fandom that's like, this is my favorite character, and I don't want anything bad to ever happen to them. 
And it's like, well, that's what stories are. Like, that's what conflict is. That's what, you know, like in a, in a superhero universe, in a sequent, you know, a, a art like comic books, a serialized fiction, if you don't have drama and conflict, you don't have a story, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that all stories are great and that everything that ha- does happen should happen. But I'm more forgiving of this story with Wally, even though he is one of my favorite characters. And even though, like most people, I had a I was taken aback that he was the main cause of it. You know, I've, I've sort of come to terms with it over time and then even come to really understand and enjoy it. So so I like that piece. I'm giving it a couple points for the Walliness of it. And then and then, <laughs> this is a total meta cheat. I love Tom King. Tom King is probably my favorite writer of this of the past decade. And Tom King is at his absolute best when he is doing self-contained 12 issue stories. His vision book is transcendently good. I mean, it, it sets up you know much of WandaVision, which was so great. His Mr. Miracle book is the greatest treatise on depression I've ever read. I love it. I think it's it's phenomenal. I'm really enjoying Strange Adventures. I'm enjoying Batman Catwoman. And I I'm I'm shocked. I didn't want anybody to touch the Watchmen universe again, especially after before Watchmen. But his Rorschach book with Jorge Fornes is amazing. And then, you know, the the fact that Sheriff of Babylon, like I just I think that that this book and the reception, this book turned people on him in a big way and, and somewhat understandably with the whole Wally thing. But this and then the Batman run he had, which, again, I love. And I think once people get away from it a little bit and then look back on it, they're going to see that it was really brilliant. But I think people were kind of getting sick of Tom King and, you know, getting sick of him being the the fair haired boy or lack of haired boy at D.C. Uh, at this time. And I think the the experience of getting sort of burned by the heroes in crisis reaction and response pushed King to say, well, I think I'm just going to do these 12 issue series for a while. I'm just going to do these self-contained books. Like right now he has three on the shelves. That's all King is doing for DC. He's doing Batman, Catwoman, Rorschach and Strange Adventures. And then he's he's even hinting like, oh, my next 12 issue partnership with Garads or Fornes or Weeks, you know, or Doc Shaner is coming up. And so for me, part of the legacy is a, a transcendently great generational writer realizing where his talents lie and realizing that he shouldn't really be doing event books. This is for me, what's what Michael, Brian Michael Bendis never realized. Brian Michael Bendis on a book <laughs> like Daredevil, brilliant on a civil war two, just hot garbage. And so I like that King has come around to recognize, well, actually my talents are best applied in these types of series. So I gave some points for that, but at the end of the day, this, this doesn't have a huge impact. So I just, I gave it a, I gave it six points. Wow, okay. Oh, thank you, gentlemen, for the both very well-reasoned uh, discussions about that. Um, for me, the impact and legacy is... I think it's about a five, because they... A lot of stuff that could have come out of this didn't, um, and the only thing that really had to be dealt with was the fact that, okay, Wally is now in this situation, what are we going to do with Wally? Uh, we can you know, give him the powers of... Um, Dr. Manhattan and the Mobius chair and things like that, which, you know, that's an interesting detour. But um, I kind of wish this episode was coming out a little bit later so we could see what uh, Jeremy Adams is going to do with uh, yeah. Wally in the, the new Flash title that comes out in the around the time this episode is released. Um, and f- for my part, I actually found... Uh, the, the Future State event was kind of ordinary to me. Like, there wasn't much that stood out but one thing that did stand out was um, Jeremy Adams contribution in um, the future state Black Adam backup in Suicide Squad that was 
something that was really fun and you know I went oh who is this writer this is you know he's got some uh, cleverness he sounds like a a little bit of Mark Russell uh, combined with a bit of Mark Wade or something going on so oh. yeah so I was very impressed by him and then I discovered he wrote the uh, Batman Soul of the Dragon so uh, which is the last animated movie which is easily the best one in 10 years so it's such a really good story and you know he he has a fun sense and he you know does good things with the characters so him coming onto Flash is very exciting to me and I feel like uh, the Wally story in this sense as far as Impact and Legacy is not over yet so we, you know what mm-hmm. will happen next I'm, I'm keen to see which I, I didn't think I would be at the end of this so for that sense I'm going to give it a 5 on Impact and Legacy because the Wally uh, of it all, which is the phrase of this episode, I think, is, um, you know, it has to be dealt with. It can't be ignored. Um, and that was the difference between this event and some of the others that are less successful is that there was something that basically, you know, the, there's a tumour at the end of it that still has to be dealt with <laughs> or something. That's a, a negative way to write it. But you know what I mean? So, yeah. So uh, that's what I think. So, all right. So let's look at all our score numbers. So... Six, 68 points total. <laughs> Who asked you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. Sean, you gave it a total of 30. Peter, you gave it a total of 28. And I gave it a total of 20. And, uh, yeah, they halved that to 10. We added up, and that is 68. Which, um, yeah, now this is one of the most interesting events in the fact that the score reflects, uh, you know, it doesn't tell you the whole story about this one. So there's, you know, elements like art. This one is off the charts for art. Um you know, just on as far as our scoring, but uh, yeah, it ends up on 68. So, yeah, I am going to now refer to my website to see where that sits on the chart, and we can say, hey, this is exactly the same as this event now. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so. curious. <laughs> While you're doing that, can I can I uh, just uh, a few uh, quick little points here? Um, Absolutely. Uh, I do. I, I wrote here. I, I said it's I do find it interesting that Batman's whole ex- premise is based on the trauma of losing his parents. Superman, certainly the last son of Krypton. Barry Allen Flash for the longest time was defined by the death of Iris. Um, and it's 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 interesting that we have a lot of characters who are orphans or who who Kyle Rayner is you know, built on the back of uh, his girlfriend, Alex, I guess. I think that's the name, yep. yeah, the Alex girlfriend died. that died. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting that these there are a lot of characters that their very premise is based on some kind of tragedy or trauma. Um, and it's just it's curious that Wally is not allowed to have any of that. Um, as, as someone mentioned, you know, or Sean, like you were saying, characters have stories have to be told. And no, they don't all have to be tragic stories, but eventually, eventually Spider-Man gives up being Spider-Man and eventually Aunt May dies and eventually mm-hmm. something happens. You know what I mean? So, so it is kind of, it's very curious that, um, I feel like there's a, a little, I don't know. I, I don't always understand the hesitancy to, to allow certain characters to go through the ringer when there are other characters who are 100% defined by that exact trauma of whatever so that was just a point i wanted to throw out interesting i mean in a way i i wish tom king had written his trauma story about gunfire or someone like that <laughs> you know a character who no one knows about who you can learn about who who hasn't got you know this whole 
weight of opinion about you know what their stories mean to people um, mm-hmm, you know who's mm-hmm. kind of a blank slate I mean I, a number of comic writers love to get their hands on a character who hasn't made an impact because like uh, James Robinson with Starman or you know Alan Moore mm-hmm. Alan Moore with Swamp Thing to a lesser extent but you know where there's a bit of blank slate there you can really do some stuff so yeah anyway uh, I'm, uh, I'm just riffing now um, alright a score of 68 That it's actually in fairly decent company like it's not a, a place of shame on the list so basically that has the even <laughs> score with Bruce Wayne Murderer and Fugitive and Forever Evil so it's it's there, which, you know, it's not too bad. So it's equal 17th on our list. So um, I am, of course, referring to waitingfordoom.com under the DCOCD heading where we have all the listings of the episodes and the ladder. And so I'm looking at a rank order. And, uh, yeah, it's 17th on the list, which... That's not too bad. I, you know, I'm, I wouldn't have expected to get that high before um, talking to you, gentlemen. So, Wow. It was the art. The art. I mean, we all yeah. three of us that really kind of put it, you know, <laughs> right there. But it still feels like even the ones you mentioned, you know, I've read them. OK, I read them. <laughs> you know, like you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it, it kind of feels like it's falling in that probably in that place where it's like, OK, these are these might you you might have an opinion about this one. So <laughs> and that's not a bad thing to do, you know? Yeah. 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 I think if if the ranking were emotional reaction to an event, good or bad, this would be, you know, up there in top five. I mean, honestly, and, and it's funny because I know there are people listening to this episode who are just, you know, cursing at, at how positive we may have been about it. But I and I had that same experience when you had Professor Allen and Emily on for for identity crisis, because that is a story <laughs> I can't get over. I can't I can't let go of the pseudibony of it all and be OK with it. And so I have the same emotional aversion to it that many people have to this. So I get it. I totally understand it. But, you know, I do think, you know, like Peter said earlier, there's just a lot of meat in this story. And so love it or hate it, you love it or hate it, I think. I don't I think there, I don't think there's a lot of, you know, meh about this story, which is more than you can say for many. Yeah, I mean, from a DC point of view, a universe point of view, you can't ignore it. <laughs> yeah. Know, it, it, yeah. It has to be acknowledged for what it did to Wally or, you know, just, yeah, the, yeah, it is. It is really. I mean, it is it is an interesting blip in Tom King's career. So, mm-hmm. hmm. Anyway, uh, we. I'm just going to cover some feedback we got on our last episode, which seems like a long time ago, but uh, we got a comment on Dark Knight's Metal from Martin Gray, and he said, "Thanks for another great episode. I am amazed that this got such a massive score." Or well, why do you listen to this one, man? Um, I found it pretty much <laughs> unreadable, literally, in the case of the fonts and color choices used for the Judge Batman. Uh, I quickly gave up on the event books. Uh, Paul is right. The knock-on effects of Dark Knight Metal have been continuous and exhausting. I disagree that it took two years before we were all sick of the Batman who laughs. I was done with him by the end of his first appearance. Uh, some of the spin-offs were good, as noted the Terrifics and Sideways, but stuff like The Unexpected and Immortal Men were opaque to the point of undo- unreadability. One spin-off I think you didn't mention was the new direction for Titans, with the team change... With people, with finding people mutated by stray source energy, it didn't last long, but wasn't bad at all. The source wall thing is my biggest problem with the legacy. We were told it was a massive, scary, world-ending thing that was coming, but it never arrived, even in the new Justice League book, which spent its whole 38 issues or whatever following up Metal and bringing in the totality and Petunia or whatever. Um, it was barely mentioned after the first few issues. 
And then in the recent death metal, a character dismisses the entire totality business in a single pa- panel with an airplane style, but that's not important right now. <laughs> Thank you, Martin, for your... <laughs> made me laugh. <laughs> he's not wrong. Uh, he's not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us and let us know what you think about this episode, and I believe this was an anticipated episode in a dreadful sort of way for some people, um, you can basically get in touch with us on Twitter at DCOCDcast. Uh, you can send us emails to at DCOCDcast at gmail.com. And, of course, the website we have. You can leave a comment on the posting for this episode uh, at waitingfordoom.com, which uh, I recommend you do. And have a look at the ladder there. It's... Um, yeah, it's getting very entertaining. This is our 50th episode. Um, wow. Uh, 51st, if you count the zero episode I did at the start, where I laid out how I'd be tackling these things, and then I didn't stick to it in the same way. Uh, <laughs> yes, but gentlemen, where can people find you online? Um, Peter, what have you got going on? Uh, all of my stuff can be found at thedailyrios.com. Don't uh, hold me to the word daily, because it uh, you know only the first year was truly daily. Uh, that's now going on. Uh, I'm wrapping up, uh, what, almost nine years now on that podcast. Um, currently, the daily aspect, again, it's not truly daily. Uh, I'm taking a look at Smallville because Smallville will be celebrating its 20th anniversary in October. So I am going through episode by episode and uh, realizing that, uh, you know, just like you're journeying through all these events, superhero TV has not changed in 20 years. So, um <laughs> Yeah, so that that's pretty much it. TheDailyRios.com. And Sean, you're you're around too. Uh, I am. Yeah, I, you can find my shows on the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, uh, where I co-host Secret Wars and Beyond with my buddy Doctor G. We cover every Marvel superhero Secret Wars miniseries, talk about the legacy, impact, eventiness, you know, just those kind of things. <laughs> and uh, we also we have a never-ending reading pile. Gregor Rujo and I just kind of trip hammer through comic book history and pick issues and series and moments that we love and talk about them. And it's just literally pure nostalgia. So uh, a lot of fun to, to do those shows with my buddies and uh, thanks Paul, you know, uh, Peter and Paul, which I guess makes me merry. Uh, thank you so much for having a, uh, having me on the show. You know, I love this show. I love your stuff. And, and honestly, you know, not to make him feel weird. I've always wanted to podcast with Peter as well. I love the daily Rios and, your coverage of, of in, uh, Heroes in Crisis is was as important to my reading of the book as the book itself. So so it's really cool to get to talk to you about this series, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, so, well, the next episode, episode 51, will be on Event Leviathan. So uh, welcome, Brian Michael Bendis, to the event uh, list. Um, and that came out in 2019. And, uh, alright, so just letting everyone know, that will be the last event we're going to cover for quite some time, because, uh, you know, one of the aspects of this is we need to do the impact and legacy, and if you get too close to an event, you can't really talk about the impact and legacy, because it hasn't happened yet, so uh, I don't want that to be entirely speculatory, I want it to be um, based on reality. So, uh, we will do... Um, the next episode, Event Leviathan, and then the week after that, uh, the episode after that will be a 
just a general discussion about events and I might invite uh, listeners and people who participate on the show to submit what their favourite event is and what makes it their favourite so we can just have a look at that because that's mm-hmm. one thing that uh, Mike and I haven't talked about is what is our favourites, you know, which ones top our personal list because, mm. uh, uh, you know, this list has been grown from a number of people's contributions but, uh, you know, we've still got our own opinions in the mix of it. Um, and then I think we'll probably take at least two years off from DCOCD until there's a bit of um, time and space on new events afterward. But I uh, I am maintaining a list of events as they come out, so there are episodes planned for beyond, and, uh, you know, should I still be alive in that time, uh, DCOCD will come back <laughs> and continue just as strong. Um, you know, and we may do some other show in the meantime, so, you know, it's... Uh, I do enjoy podcasting, so... And this has been... Yeah, a, a bit of a special run for me and uh, for Mike with his help and all the people I've got to do it this with. Is, I mean, it's one of the best things about it. It's had so many people involved. So, uh, yeah, that's what's coming up. But um, thank you, everyone, for listening and thank you, uh, Peter and Sean, for being part of it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I should have the app up in about half an hour because it's all oh, wow. edited. Okay. I just need to slot in the bits. So. Title of your sex tape. Okay. Uh, <laughs> here we Sorry. go. All right. <clears throat> in three. Oh, hang on. I've got a mutant cough. A mutant cough? No, I've got to mute myself so I can cough. Not a mutant cough. That's my mutant superpower. Coughing. Yay. Um, all right. That's my secret. I'm always coughing.